Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Well, I just did some maths and worked out that next month I will have had the pleasure of hosting Hong Kong Heritage for 24 years. It's always a privilege, invited into family gatherings, village festivals, temples, anniversaries. Over the years, I've often interviewed people towards the end of their lives and I get to benefit from a life of experience. Such was the case with Peter Moss. Peter was a journalist in what was known formerly as Malaya during the Malayan emergency. He was a great writer, raconteur and poet. And here in Hong Kong, the former head of publicity for the Information Services Department. Peter Moss, who spent more than four decades associated with Hong Kong, died three years ago in early 1919. In this Hong Kong heritage, which was originally aired in 2018 and really shows Peter as a storyteller that he was, he recounts his childhood, Winston Churchill and the Winkle Club, and his journey at the age of 22 aboard the Indiaman, an old London bus driven by an Irishman from London to Calcutta. From there, Peter would continue on by sea to Malaya, where he worked for the Malay Mail. I was born in India into an Anglo-Indian railway family. And uh, because of the itinerant nature of the Indian railways, we were always moving house. So I got to see quite a bit of India when I was uh, young. I left in 1946 when I was 11, a year before Indian independence. So you're 82 now? Going to be 83 in June, yes. What is an Anglo-Indian railway family? Well, the Anglo-Indian community basically ran the railways, uh, except for the top brass. My father was a cockney from the east end of London, and he came out to India because his father, who was a regimental sergeant major in the Royal Horse Artillery, was posted out there for three years and those years between the wars British army units would send their regiments overseas for a three-year spell and when my father was 14 years old his family were posted to India and he fell in love with India and didn't want to leave when his parents were due to be sent back he had by then apprenticed himself to a railway locomotive workshop which was a r rather unusual thing to do because mostly the, these workshops catered to Anglo-Indians. So he found himself in the midst of an Anglo-Indian community and relished it. He felt completely at home. So this is basically British that have married locally? Yes. The, these were not necessarily railway people, but for some reason the Anglo-Indian progeny would either end up in the railways or in the police force. And the railways, I think, absorbed more, a higher proportion of them. And that's where my father met my mother, who was also Eurasian. And we were happily settled in India until it became apparent that once the Indians gained their freedom, it would be India for the Indians. So my father saw the writing on the wall and decided it was time to go back to England. So you have your formative years, really. So you're born in 1935, yes. and uh, you live in India until 1946. Incredible upbringing. I mean, you must... I loved it. So where were you particularly? And you were travelling as a railway family. Or... Yes, yes. We, <laughs> I was born in Allahabad. We then went down to Lucknow, to Malpur, which was the great railway headquarters. Kipling wrote about it, and ended up in a 
place called Kanshrapara, which is just north of Calcutta. And oddly enough, I had these vivid memories of Kanshrapara, which I'd last seen at the age of eight. But it stuck so vividly in my mind, because at that stage, in 1943, when the war was halfway through, the Japanese were bombing Calcutta and Kanshrapara, where we had a big <coughs> railway colony and the railway and workshops which they were aiming to destroy. We had a large contingent of British forces and Royal Air Force personnel to defend us because it was almost sort of the front line of eastern India because beyond the, the hills was Burma which was fully occupied by the Japanese. So we were certainly within bombing range and I enjoyed the camaraderie of all these troops around us. My, mother and my grandmother in particular used to love entertaining them so we'd have parties almost with <laughs> at least once a week and, so uh, your your mother was she was eurasian and what was her name her name was holly a name chosen by her mother because there was a tennis player by that name in the year when uh, my mother was born 1912 she was one of five children, all went to a school called Oak Grove in Missouri in the Himalayan foothills. Oak Grove catered to Anglo-Indian railway children and they had very happy years there. And did you have brothers and sisters? I had two younger brothers, um, sadly both deceased now. You were brought up in a railway family, so what was your father's job? The job he most relished was running the locomotive workshops at Kanshapara, this little railway colony north of Calcutta. So they'd have all been steam? Yes, they were in those days. And he was an extremely good designer. He, in fact, designed armoured cars during the war, which went into production for the Indian security forces. And I had this vivid memories of my years in Kanshapara, which I'd left at the age of eight, so that in 1978, when I had a spell of home leave, I decided to stop off and see if my recall of Kanshapara was accurate and whether there was anything there which would remind me of my childhood. And indeed, everything was still in place as I recalled it. I could read it like the back of my hand. It was so exactly the houses I'd occupied, the little railway bungalows the Railway Institute, which was the focus of our life. It's called the Bell Institute, where my father had been the club secretary during the war. And we used to entertain the troops there with ballroom dancing and cinematic screenings. Can you do proper dancing? Me, as a dancer, no, I was much too young. But I do remember that that was where, for the first time in my life, I met Geoffrey Weeks, who subsequently became head of RTHK, before your time, I think. Geoffrey was part of an ENSA program, the troupe that used to entertain forces overseas. Um, and he recalled to me his performances at the Kanshapara Railway Institute when I would have been about, I suppose, eight years old, in the audience unaware that this man on stage was going to figure in my future life, you know. Geoffrey Weeks was a tremendous theatrical performer. 
The next time I met him was in Malaysia when I took part in a production of Peter Ustinov's play Romanov and Juliet, which was set in some fictitious little European town. And the story revolves around Romanov being the son of the Russian ambassador and Juliet being the daughter of the American in embassies that are directly opposite each other in this narrow street. The stage mechanics required the set to be revolved. You would independently have to trundle out one or other embassy to expose the personnel inside having their conversations about what to do about Juliet being so infatuated by this young man across the road, you know. And I was, when I was not on stage myself, I was part of the mechanical team that trundled out these embassies. And we got our cues mixed up on one ghastly occasion. And we pulled out the American embassy when they had absolutely nothing to say. <laughs> and you could hear these mumbled voices from the Russian embassy across the street. So we had to dash backstage, pull back the American embassy, dash backstage to push out the Russians just at the point where their dialogue had ended. So we lost a great deal of the impact of the play that particular evening. But Jeffrey was part of the Russian cast and he was such a tremendous performer. He appeared in just about everything that the Hong Kong repertory were producing when he joined Radio Hong Kong. He was one of their star performers and I saw many a play here with Jeffrey in the cast. He became a very dear friend. I had actually started as an apprentice journalist at the age of 15. My father had lost a lot of his self-esteem when we went back to England in 1946 from a highly paid job as head of this railway locomotive workshop. He suffered a nervous breakdown. He felt he wasn't equipped for life back in England and he'd made a big mistake in leaving India. So we were in Poverty Street for a while. My mother, who'd never had to cook anything in her life, suddenly had to learn how to produce meals and cope with raising three young boys with a husband who was suffering a, such a nervous breakdown that he wouldn't even go to the windows for fear that he would find people stalking him. It was a really sad occasion. Where were we heading at that point? Your first job. Ah, my first job. He said that he had started working as a railway apprentice at the age of 14 and he couldn't go on offering me enough finance to get me through university so I would have to start looking for a job myself. We were living in Hastings on the south coast where there were very few opportunities to do anything and I was not particularly skilled at anything except writing. I was reasonably good at writing. So I applied for the job as a local district reporter on the Bexel on Sea Observer, which was another of the newspapers run by the F.J. Parsons Group. Eventually, after my two years of national service, I returned to my apprenticeship, not with the Bexel on Sea Observer, but with the Hastings Observer. And one of my first assignments was to cover the speech of Sir Winston Churchill, who came down to Hastings with Montgomery of Desert Rats fame to be inducted into the Hastings Winkle Club, formed by local fishermen. So Winston Churchill came down? Yes. This was such a major event for the relatively small editorial crew of the Hastings Observer that we drew lots as to who was going to cover which aspect of the visit 
and it fell to me to cover his speech at the White Rock Pavilion. And I had lost all of my Pittman shorthand after two years of disuse in national service. And I thought, my God, I'm, I'm going to lose my job because you know how Sir Winston had this wonderfully slow delivery of emphasizing particular phrases. It should have been child's play to keep up in longhand with what he was saying. But the notes I was taking became totally unintelligible, and I knew I was never going to be able to transcribe them. And I was not going to be giving a, an accurate report of what he said. So, after the speech, we adjourned to the... Winkle Club? The Winkle... Well, not the Winkle Club, but the lobby of the White Rock Pavilion. Ah, yes, the White Rock Pavilion was where you were, but what was the Winkle Club? Well, it was a, a gimmick started by the Hastings fishermen at Rock and Oar to invite celebrities to come and deliver usually comic speeches and get their little winkles. It was a winkle, it was a little seashell. And you had this phrase, winkle up, and you all produced your winkles. <laughs> <laughs> it was a ridiculous ritual. And Montgomery had become a member of this a year before. And Sir Winston, having lost the elections again, was in a fairly somber mood. And just to cheer what, year, what year are we talking there? We're talking about 1955. Uh, Monty, to cheer him up, told him, look, uh, let's go down to Hastings and we'll induct you and I will be your sponsor in the Winkle Club. So they drove down in the old desert rat's car, which was parked outside the White Rock Pavilion. And um, I was in despair. We, we were assembled in the lobby after the speech. Winnie was talking to the Lord Mayor and Monty was beside him. And Monty cast a roving eye around the room and saw me looking desperate and raised a sort of eyebrow as if to say, whatever is amiss, young man. So I went, Bucked up my courage, I went over to him and said, I've just returned from the service of Her Majesty, and I'm afraid I've lost all of my skills as a reporter. Could you possibly persuade Sir Winston to let me have a copy of his speech? So Monty turns to Winnie. Winnie? Well, Winnie is that we knew him. <laughs> and says, hey, Winnie, you don't need that speech of yours anymore, do you? Why don't you just let this young man have a copy? So without even glancing in my direction, Winston produces the speech, hands it over to me, and I go away elated. I mean, I've got the original typescript, a landscape format, sheets that reporters use, and he'd been a reporter, of course, double-spaced lines, pregnant pauses with dot, dot, dots in order to emphasize particular points of the speech. And his handwritten notations where he'd actually corrected what he'd intended to say. And this would have fetched a fortune in today's market, you know. But stupidly, I went back, holding this document in my hand, saying, I've actually got Sir Winston's speech. And that was the last I saw of it. <laughs> Did you enjoy being a reporter? I did, especially when I got to Malaysia. I had been so homesick. For India? For India, that I desperately wanted to go back east. What would you have said when you were living in Britain? Was it also, perhaps to a certain extent, the lack of sunshine or 
the lack of monsoon rains? Was it the food? Was it the people? A combination of virtually all of those things, but mostly the fact that I had been so disappointed to find that this heart of empire was such a small, crowded and overpopulated island, greatly inferior in terms of territorial size to its huge possessions overseas. In India, you had limitless horizons. In England, you had this crowded little counterpane landscape where you could just about see you know the next hill there were no sweeping panoramas no sense of spaciousness everything was cramped and of course arriving in 1946 was the worst possible time to see England just after the war blitzed London ration books gloomy weather people who'd survived the war but were still trying to get back into their old lifestyle. I did not take to England at all. It just did not imprint itself on me. So you were there from the age of 11 until... Until I was 22, when I... 1957. So you head off to where? Kuala Lumpur? Overland by bus, yes. From England? Yes. Um, oh, what was the journey? Well, it was the first ever overland <laughs> bus journey from London to Calcutta, and it was a vehicle. So when you say it was the first overland, so was this something you could pay him a ticket for, or was it just Peter Moss doing another first? No, 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 it was a, the first overland bus service called the India Man, run by a crazy Irishman called Paddy Garrow Fisher, who not only owned the company, owned the bus, but actually was its only driver. He would personally drive us all the way from London to Calcutta. What sort of bus? It was a clapped-out sort of London to Margate bus. What, Great. like a double-decker? No, a single-decker. A sort of charabank of the 1930s era, which looked a poor companion to far superior vehicles in Victoria Coach Station that were heading for Ramsgate or Margate or Southend. So it was a former public bus? It was a former bus, a little... So where did you sleep? We had canvas tents stacked at the back with aluminium pegs that we were supposed to hammer into the desert. And how many of you travelled? There were 14 of us, or was it 16? 16, I think. Oddly enough, evenly distributed, eight women and eight men including Canadians, Australians, Britons, of course. And some of them were going to take the journey out and come back again. I so was some, I mean, was it, was it all because people had work to do uh, or was were some people seeing it as, as a holiday? Some of us were using it as cheap transportation because we wanted to get out east. And if you remember, in 1957, the Suez Canal was still closed in the aftermath of the, of the war, and you had to sail via the Cape, Cape of Good Hope. So the cost of sea passages had increased substantially. The bus trip would cost me only £85. I had to find my own food and lodging en route, and I had skimped and saved enough to pay for the bus ticket and give myself an extra £45 for the journey. The journey, incidentally, by coincidence, took 45 days, so I spent a pound a day. Ah, but, I mean, that's just extraordinary. So you would have had... So off your old troop, did he sort of say, right, well, we're leaving at 12 o'clock from... Yes, we assembled at Victoria Coach Station in the midst of these weekenders going off for their weekends at the local seaside resorts who cast curious eyes in our direction because... 
the bus claimed on the, along the side that it was going to go from London to India, to Calcutta. And people would come over and say, is this true? Is this, are you really going to India in this ridiculous old machine, which is smaller than the bus in which we're going to, to Ramsgate, you know? And he said, yes, yes. So you went down to Dover? We went down to Dover, made the, made the Channel Crossing, proceeded down through France to the Italian border, crossed over northern Italy to Venice, and then via Turin through Czechoslovakia, which of course was still a one country in those days. I was arrested as a spy in eastern Bulgaria somewhere, just before the Bulgarian border. How come? Well, because some officials little local policemen had spotted me taking shots of the local street scenes and claimed I had uh, photographed military installations. There wasn't a military installation anywhere in sight. I think he wanted to impress the locals with his powers as a policeman. So I was taken off to the local police station and had my camera confiscated and the film was developed, much to my dismay because I thought, God, they're going to lose all the photographs on my film. But fortunately, the local photographic studio managed to retrieve what was on the roll to prove that I had taken nothing more than just pictures of the local bullet carts and street cleaners. So I was released and uh, we proceeded on our way. Did you get your camera back? Oh, yes, yes. So you went Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria. And then on through Turkey to Iran. We crossed Iran. Did you have any engine problems? Ah, uh, yes. We had at least two breakdowns, the most serious of which was a broken suspension in southern Iran, next to the Dashtilu Desert. And we were held up for a couple of days there to get this wretched thing replaced. And could you, and so did he share the driving, or just him? He drove all the way. And so you would, what, how, you would drive, say, about eight hours a day, and then you would pack up, or did you weather certain times where you were travelling in desert areas, or arid areas where you, you would then sort of have a siesta? Paddy would drive until sheer exhaustion forced him to pull in by the roadside and he'd promptly fall asleep at the wheel. His Indian wife, Moti, parked on a, a great bedding bag alongside him, there to serve him cold dal when he woke up. And we would be left in our seats, you know, let's say 8 o'clock at night, no hotel in sight anywhere, not even a, a patch of sand in which we could pitch our tents. We would have to sleep in the bus until he woke up. <laughs> this would happen once or twice. I think the most memorable part of the trip was crossing this wretched desert, the Dashtilu Desert, which was a desert in those days, and they now have a road across it, I believe. But in those days, you had these enormous Mercedes trucks with eight wheels and uh, massive engines parked by the edge of the desert, ready to make the crossing at nightfall because it was so damn hot. You couldn't risk crossing it by day. So there we were with this miserable little share bag with a tiny wheelbase and these incredulous drivers also wondering what the hell we were doing there. <laughs> Paddy had to strike a deal with one of the Mercedes lorry drivers to tow us across the desert, which he did. So with the aid of planks and torchlights, once the sun had descended, foot by foot, we crawled our way across this desert, right through the night. At one stage, I had a scorpion crawling on my leg, which I could easily have done some damage with had I attempted to flick it off. The uh, Iranian next to me 
use his shoe to dislodge it. Yeah, and there was the problem of my thirst. I had not taken enough water. And I was desperate because I was suffering dehydration. So I pleaded with one of these lorry drivers to get me some water. And he went to the radiator and emptied the radiator tank and gave me this rust-covered, boiled liquid, <laughs> which I consumed, really. Yeah, quite a memorable trip, one way or another. So you crossed the desert in southern Iran, and then how did you continue? We went through Baluchistan. Paddy had decided to avoid Afghanistan, which as ever was in turmoil. Instead, we went through Baluchistan, which of course is now western Pakistan. We went up to Quetta and saw our first Sputnik, the Russian Sputnik, was launched that year. We were lying outside our hotel on the lawn. Oh, you had a hotel? In Quetta, yes. But at twilight, we were sort of lying on the grass, gazing up at the night sky, and we saw this, what looked like a very slow-moving shooting star crossing the sky. Sputnik is about the size of a, a large beach ball. But there it was, you know, outlined against the night twilight sky. We wondered what the hell it was. It wasn't until we got down to Lahore and read the newspapers that we realized that it was Sputnik. We'd, the Russians had launched this space vehicle, would you believe? Yes. So, yes, I had to leave the bus at Agra. Although the bus claimed to be going to Calcutta, which it had done on other trips, on that occasion it was going to go down to Bombay. So I and a companion from Canada decided to catch the train from Agra to Calcutta, where I was accommodated by an Anglo-Indian family whom I had known from my years in Calcutta attending St. Xavier's College. An aunt of mine in Kuala Lumpur sent me a telegram saying, I've booked your tickets on this ship leaving Kidapur docks. Oh, I'm glad you're still going surface. I thought you were going to ruin the story by saying it was an aeroplane. No. <laughs> no. What port? Kidapur docks, which was south of Calcutta, a ship called the Santia, uh, which called it Rangoon on the way. Victoria Station in London and all the way out. Did you have to get all your visas ahead? Yes. Yes, yes I had a passport full of visas, um, which I'm sadly now lost, including the visa, of course, for Bulgaria, which was the only communist country we would pass through. So you head off from the Kidabor docks. These are in Calcutta. Yes. So you then would sail to where? The first stop was Yangon or Rangoon. Um, where I went ashore and um, I had 24 hours to look around. Uh, leaving Yangon, the next stop was Penang, where I was due to disembark because my uncle and aunt were going to pick me up. The trouble was uh, I didn't have a job in Malaya, so they were going to give me only a one-week tourist visa. And I said, but didn't you receive a letter from my employer? I said, what employer? I said, the editor of the Malay Mail. I had, in fact, written to him just before I departed, but hadn't received no reply. And they said, no, we have no such letter telling us that you're employed by them. So I said, well, can you give me a week to just go down and sort things out? <laughs> so they let me have a week's grace. And fortunately, I kind of fell on my knees in front of Martin Hutton, who was the editor in those days, and told him, um, asked him if he'd received a letter from me, which he had. 
he had sent me a reply saying unfortunately we have no need of a, another reporter I said but can you please listen to my story and I told him how I'd arrived on this overland bus he was sufficiently intrigued to ask me to write an article about that well in fact I produced three articles which he published and which got me the entree to his star the late Peter Moss there his book on this bus journey, The India Man, When the Going Was Good by Land and Sea, is still commercially available. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>